Hold on. Hold on. That went away. Don't, don't laugh. One of you is going to try it, and you're going to see how awesome it works, and you're just going to prove me right that this is an amazing technique, even though you, I invented it, okay? So just live with that. Now, I thought it was cute and quaint that uh, some of our spouses, my wife included, would take some minutes to make a cute little video about all of our quirks and flaws and idiosyncrasies and so on. The problem for my wife is that I don't think she realized that I would be following up that video with quite a bit of a longer video in which I have the opportunity to say everything and anything that I want. And so I have made some notes about some of my wife's idiosyncrasies that I would like to... Oh no, these are mine. Never mind. That's not good. Uh, I had some note. Yeah, here it is. Um, sometimes she kicks her socks onto my side of the bed. That's about it. That's all I got. That's, that's, about, that's about it. Listen, we're in this third week of the series called Family Resemblance. Connected, subtitled Family Resemblance. And we're talking about... The reality that all of us, both positively and negatively, bear a family resemblance to the, to the family that nurtured us and that raised us in the world and taught us how to love and to relate to the people in our lives for better, for worse, right? Helpful and hurtful in ways that are conducive to relationship and ways that are destructive to relationship. We all learn how to love from our families, but secondly, we all have the opportunity to choose how much we're gonna resemble those families in the way that we relate to people moving forward. We have the choice to leave behind some of the negative behaviors and to embrace the positive behaviors that reflect the love of our heavenly family, a God who is our father and mother and Jesus, who's our brother, we can learn to love the way that God loves. And so that's what we're looking at in this whole month. We're talking about patterns of relatings that are found in families when families are working right and how they reflect the way that God loves us and ways, thinking about ways in which we can learn to extend that kind of love to everybody. And so this morning we're thinking about a particular pattern of behaving that is uh, found in all families that when families are working right, in those moments when families are being what family is supposed to be, and that is the reality that the family is intended to be this kind of community of unconditional acceptance, where people are accepted and embraced and loved just as they are, no matter what, warts and all, pet noses and all, with all of our idiosyncrasies and weirdness and brokenness and whatever, we still get loved by our family. A quick story about this. I remember 15 years or more ago, Jeff Lockyer and I uh, were driving around together. We were talking about a family that we both knew. It was just a normal family, not a, a really tragic situation or anything, just a normal family with their own quirks and flaws and, you know, unhealthy ways of behaving and dysfunction, the way we all have it. And we were talking about the fact that they were going through this season where some of their unhealthy behaviors was actually creating a significant amount of tension in the family and actually threatened to weaken relationships between members of the family in a way that they were kind of bringing on themselves because of how they had chosen to relate to each other. We were debriefing this whole situation together. And I remember near the end of the conversation, I said to Jeff, I said, 
I said, I just gotta say, I am just so thankful that at least I got to grow up in a family that's normal. <laughs> like, it's just one of the dumb, naive things you say when you're 25 and you have no idea what you're talking about. And Jeff laughed at me when I said it. And he said, listen, he said, don't kid yourself. He said, your family isn't any more or less normal than any other family, including the one that we're talking about. We're all the same. And it was like one of these light bulb moments where I started to reflect on that and realized that my family was as quirky and as flawed, had as many faults and, and as much weirdness and brokenness to it, had as many unhealthy patterns of relating and as much dysfunction as you know, most other normal families outside of you know, the tr- really tragic scenarios. And yet I had never thought about it that way. I knew that we had weirdness and craziness in the family, but I never thought about my family as weird and crazy. I just thought about us as normal. Everybody I knew had their own brokenness and their flaws, but I never thought about people as broken and flawed. I just thought about them as members of my family. So I loved them and accepted them just as they are. And to me, it just never made a difference. That's, and that to me is how families are supposed to be. They're supposed to be these communities of unconditional acceptance where we don't even really think about how weird and broken and flawed we all are. We just love and embrace and accept each other just the way we are. But the thing is, and this kind of the dark corollary to that experience, the, the dark underside of the story is that that was also the moment where I began to realize that I don't really accept, extend that kind of acceptance and grace much further than my own family. Because the statement I actually made was a statement of profound and ignorant judgment on another family that I was criticizing for not being normal like our family was. So this is what we do. We love and accept the people in our family, but as soon as we get outside that circle, we get into this other mode of believing this other mode of behaving towards people where we start to actually use ourselves and our lives and our experience as sort of this standard of normal, this relatively arbitrary standard of normal against which we judge everybody else. And actually it turns out that the standard isn't arbitrary at all. We pick the standard according to what we think is normal because it validates us when we judge other people. That's what judgment is. It is validating ourselves at somebody else's expense and it's entirely and completely destructive to our capacity to love. And that's the challenge that we want to talk about this morning. This idea that while we're willing to be gracious and accepting to people in our family, the love of God calls us to be something more than that. The story that I thought about as I was reflecting on this from the life of Jesus is a story From Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, it says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, we later learned the guy's name is Simon, Jesus went to Simon's house and reclined at the table. In all likelihood, Simon had heard Jesus preach and decided that he wanted to have Jesus over to his house in order to hear him some more in order to go back and forth a little bit and investigate a little bit further about you know what Jesus believed about this or that or whatever. And so he invites Jesus after synagogue over to his house for a meal. And Jesus accepts the invitation. 
But he gets there. Jesus would have expected certain customs of hospitality to prevail. In the ancient world, the hospitality is an art in a way that it's been lost largely today. But there were customs and behaviors that were just expected. When the guest arrives at the host's door, the host would greet him with a kiss on both cheeks. If it was a rabbi as Jesus was, Simon even calls him rabbi later, then the male members of the household would all line up at the door and wait for their opportunity uh, to kiss the rabbi's hand in reverence and respect. It's a custom that I think we should still have in our culture, quite frankly, but that's just my opinion. But it's, he would expect the kiss of greeting and then, and then what the host would do, it would anoint the guest's head with olive oil. It was cheap and inexpensive and it didn't cost much, but it was, a, it was a quick and dirty way to kind of freshen up after being outside in the heat and the dust and the dirt and whatever. It just kind of made all the dust disappear and it sort of made you feel fresh and clean a little bit again. And then the guests would take off their sandals and would be ushered to the table. In this instance, a low table that was set up in the courtyard that was surrounded by low couches on which the guests would recline in order of their social rank around the table. And they would recline on their left elbow with the table in front of them and they'd bend their feet away from the table because in those days, wearing bare feet all the time, sandals, you know, grime and muck and open sewers in the streets and so on. Feet were a pretty disgusting thing. They're disgusting now, but they were more disgusting back then. And so you, they were kind of a shameful thing. You turn them away from the table so that a servant can come along behind you and put a bowl under your feet and pour a pitcher of water over your dirty feet and grab a towel and begin to clean them off so that you can be cleaned as you eat your dinner at the table. Well, you learn as you read through the rest of this story. So when Jesus arrives at Simon's house, Simon offers him absolutely none of those courtesies. There's no kiss, there's no oil, there's no water, there's no servant, there's no washing of the feet, there's nothing. And it's not an oversight. It's not like Simon forgot to put somebody on olive oil duty that day. It was a very deliberate and calculated public insult. Simon was proclaiming to everyone in attendance that he considered himself to be of a superior social status to Jesus. That he considered Jesus to be his inferior and he was going to treat Jesus that way. Turns out that Simon wasn't kind of just curious to hear more of Jesus' teaching. He wanted to put this preacher under a microscope, as people do, and analyze everything that he said and did to pick him apart to see whether this particular preacher lived up to Simon's own definition of what a prophet in Israel ought to be. And if Jesus didn't live up to that expectation... Simon was going to judge him harshly for it. Already had. Well, it turns out <clears throat> that people noticed the insult. It says in verse 37, there was a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, that's important, and learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. 
And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. In those days uh, when there was an open banquet in the courtyard of somebody's home, the, house, the gate at the house was kept open and anyone in the village could come and sit along the edges of the courtyard, not to participate in the banquet, but to participate in the conversation, to hear what was being said between two influential and important people in their community. And one of the people who showed up at this banquet was this woman who had spent most of her adult life working the streets, selling her body to feed her family. Somewhere along the way, she must have heard from Jesus the message of God's accepting and forgiving love who was willing to embrace sinners, you know, so-called like her in forgiveness and love. And, and that acceptance of the love of God transformed this woman's life. And she showed up at the banquet, presumably because she wanted to thank Jesus for the way that he had changed her life. But when she saw the way Simon treated Jesus as he entered the home, she was horrified. Couldn't believe it. Overcome even with emotion. She leaps out of her chair. <clears throat> excuse me. And she races to Jesus' side. She's actually so emotional. She begins to weep. And the tears as she arrives at Jesus' place at the table. The tears begin to stream down her face. And they fall from her cheeks. And they land on his feet. And as they do, they begin to wipe some of the dust away. And so she kneels down. And she lets down her hair, an act that a woman was only permitted to do in the presence of her husband in the bedroom, an act so sexually provocative, it was considered equivalent by the rabbis to a woman bearing her chest. She lets down her hair and tenderly begins to clean his feet and she begins to kiss him, not on his cheeks, not on his hands, but on his feet in this act of servitude, in this act of humility and devotion and admiration and love. And then she breaks out the perfume and she anoints his feet, not with cheap olive oil, but with the most expensive perfume, a tool of her trade. It's an expression of her love and gratitude. It says in verse 37, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this is the inner dialogue. If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she's a sinner. It's kind of Simon's way of slapping both Jesus and the woman with one swing of his backhand. Uh, this woman, he is thinking to himself, is a filthy you fill in the blank. And if this guy were the prophet that he claims to be, he'd know exactly what kind of disgusting woman this is and he wouldn't allow this woman to touch him. He wouldn't want to have anything to do with her. Isn't that the way it is most of the time? I mean, if you're like me at all. That we go through so much of our life with this kind of running dialogue in our head, just sort of, rolling opinions around about the kind of people that we encounter every day. 
using ourselves as the standard of what we think is normal and then judging everybody else against the standard. Well, that person's too sinful. That person's sin is disgusting. I can tolerate some sin, but not that sin. That person's too critical. That person's too naive. That person's too pessimistic. That person's too optimistic. That person's too sloppy. That person's too perfectionistic. That person talks too much. That person doesn't talk enough. That person's lazy. That person's weird. That person's boring. That person's forgetful. On and on and on the opinions go. The internal dialogue that rolls around in our head about all the people that we see around us all the time, just endless opinions and judgments about all the ways that the people around us don't live up to our expectations of what a reasonable human being would be. Or maybe it's just me. What strikes me in the story is about just how different Jesus' response is to both the woman and Simon from Simon's response to both the woman and Jesus. As Jesus is debriefing this whole experience with Simon at the end of the story, this is what he says, verse 47. He says, I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. What's interesting is that Simon's criticism of Jesus was, if this guy was any kind of prophet, he'd know what kind of woman is touching him, but he clearly doesn't because he's allowing her to touch him. The, The funny thing is, Jesus knows exactly what kind of woman this is. Jesus says, her many sins have been forgiven. Simon, I understand who this woman is. I understand what she likes. I understand that she has sinned much, that she has sinned big time, that she has sinned often, that she has blown it in ways that you and I can't even imagine. I know exactly who this woman is. How else do you explain the elaborate, extravagant, embarrassing, shameful display of love that she's just poured out? Jesus knew exactly who she was, every bit as well as Simon did. But the difference between them was the way they responded. Simon's response was to withdraw, to pull back, to exclude her, and to push her out of the circle of people that were allowed to touch his life. Jesus did the opposite. Jesus moved towards her and embraced her and welcomed her into the circle of people that were allowed to touch his life. The difference shows up again in Jesus' relationship with Simon. See, Jesus doesn't just know what the woman is like. Jesus knows what kind of man that Simon is as well. In fact, I mean, Simon showed his cards when he insulted Jesus from the moment that Jesus walked through the door. One commentator called it a declaration of war, like social status war. He says it would have electrified the room that guests and servants and onlookers would have all been sitting on the edge of their seats to see how this young rabbi would respond to being publicly insulted by a public figure like Simon. And the expectation is that Jesus would do something to try and save face, to defend, excuse me, defend his dignity, that he would stand up 
at the table or he'd walk out at the door and he would mutter something about not being welcome in this place and leave the banquet as a way of embarrassing the host, throwing the shame back on Simon. But that's not what Jesus does. When he's insulted at the door, he doesn't withdraw and exclude Simon and, and move away. Jesus enters in. He takes a step towards Simon, makes his way to the table, reclines and gets ready to eat with Simon, which in the ancient world is an act of friendship and trust and forgiveness and love. Jesus absorbs the insult in himself, absorbs the hostility that Simon sends out and then moves towards him in friendship and love. See, that's what the love of Jesus looks like. That's how Jesus treats not just, you know, the quote unquote sinner types, people whose behaviors would seemingly violate everything that Jesus stands for. It's how he treats everyone up to and including those who have put themselves in hostility towards him. What does it take to love people like that? How do we become people who love people like that? I think there's two things. I think number one, if we're going to become people who willingly take a step towards those that we would normally be inclined to judge and exclude, it's going to begin in as much as we re-posture our own sense of ourselves. Um, Jesus says to Simon at the end of the story, he says, whoever's been forgiven little loves little. Essentially what he's saying to Simon is, listen, you start with your own perception of yourself, that you don't need to be forgiven that much, that actually your opinion of yourself is that you're not as screwed up or as flawed or as broken or as weird or as idiosyncratic, as quirky as everybody else around you. You start out with this place of assuming that you're better. And this idea that you're not as broken as everybody else leads you to believe that you don't need to be forgiven as much as everybody else. And the one who's forgiven little loves little. That opinion of yourself hampers your ability to love anybody else. Your overinflated sense of yourself closes off your capacity to love everyone else. I think the beginning place of living a life of openness and acceptance, of unconditional acceptance to everyone, like we would love those in our own family, warts and all, just as they are, begins with the kind of humility that can look in the mirror and recognize that we're as broken and weird and screwed up and flawed and unhealthy and dysfunctional as anybody around us. That we are in as desperate a need for grace and forgiveness and acceptance as anybody around us. That we live every moment of every day on the grace 
of God and those who have invited us into their lives. I'm not talking about living like I'm a worm and I'm not worthy. There's nothing good about me and nobody should like me. That's false humility. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having a realistic sense of ourselves that we're as normal as everybody else, which means we're just as screwed up and flawed as anybody and just as needing of grace as everybody. And the moment you get to that place, you open yourself up for the capacity to love. The one who love for, is forgiven much, loves much. And what does that love look like? It's a reposturing of ourselves in relationship with everybody else. In the chapter before, Jesus said this, to you who are listening, I say this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now that we've reevaluated our sense of ourselves, we look towards everybody else and Jesus says, and here's your grid. I want you to think about what it would look like for you to love everybody up to and including the most difficult people in the world to love, which are those who have set themselves against you in hostility, who hate you, who want the worst for you. And Jesus says, whoever that person, those people are for you, here's how I want you to set your mind towards them. I want you to go through your life and the inner dialogue, instead of being one of judgment and condemnation, the inner dialogue is this conversation. What can I do for them that would be good for them? How can I pour goodness into them? How can I be value added to their life? The dialogue sounds like this. Instead of cursing them in your head and talking them down and beating them up with your own opinions and judgments or whatever, the inner dialogue is this. What can I do to bless them? To be a blessing to them. To lift them up in my head and in the way that I speak and in the way that I live towards them. What can I do to lift them up instead of tear them down? The inner dialogue sounds like this. Instead of talking, you know, smack about them, it's how can I pray for them? What could I talk to God about for them so that he could pour his goodness and love into them? It's changing the tape in your head about what you say about yourself and what you say about everybody else so that we can begin to right-size not just our sense of ourselves, but our sense of others and open up our heart for the capacity to love everybody else. To invite everybody else into that same kind of community of unconditional acceptance in which we live with the ones that we love the most. That's what it looks like to bear a family resemblance to the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, if most of us are honest, we go through life and there are so many judgments in our head, so many opinions about other people, so many thoughts about what somebody should do or shouldn't do, what kind of parent they are, what their kids are like, what their marriage is like, what their... Whatever, God, we just have so many opinions that are none of our business that do nothing but tear the other person down, destroy our capacity for love and build us up in a false sense of self-righteousness. 
God, would you help us to see ourselves for who we really are through the lens of our need for grace and through that lens, God, would you help us see other people for who they really are, normal, just like us, in need of love and acceptance, in need of people who will take a step towards them and lean in rather than taking a step back and pushing them out. Make us, God, those people who will love folks just as they are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.